All right. Now, this is a question. This is sort of an advanced level question, an advanced Sunday school question. Uh, is God all-powerful? It's a yes or no question. It's not a trick. Is he all-powerful? Yeah, yeah, he is. He is, right? Does that mean God can do anything? Can God do anything? Oh, are you sure about that? This is the trick question. And I'm so happy to be the one to introduce it to you because you're going to be catching people out with it for the rest of your lives, God willing. God can't do everything. There's plenty of things he can't do. He can't sin. He can't repent. God is all-powerful, but that doesn't mean he does everything. That doesn't mean that he can do everything. It means he does what he wants. It means he can do everything he wants to do. And because God is good, it means he can do all those good things that he wants to do. Now, here's a question for you. You're all God's kids. In Christ, you guys are all powerful too. You can pray and you can change the world because you're sons and daughters of the God who can do all he wants to do. Now, even though you're all powerful, does that mean you can do anything you want to do? No, 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 it doesn't. Because that's not what it means to be a son of the king. You are powerful. But it means that you have the power to turn from doing bad and to devote yourself to doing good. That's a real display of power. Anyone can do anything they want to do, really. You drive past them in Manorewa, you look out the window, and you can see people that do whatever they want to do. That's not power. <laughs> That's weakness. That's slavery. But as Christians, you kids have enormous power from God. And you can use that power to turn from evil and to do good anytime. Let's pray that that would be true. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have poured yourself out for us. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us everything. And Lord, especially for these children, that you have given them the great privilege of being born as Christians, as the heirs of great power. Lord God, we pray that they would grow up and they would uh, reckon with the great power and privilege that is theirs by covenant. That they wouldn't use their great power for evil, but would, as sons and daughters of the king, reflect his goodness and use that power to turn from wickedness. That they would grow up straight. That they would grow up secure in their belief and their faith in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our sermon this morning...
is a miracle account in the book of Matthew at the end of chapter 17. It's uh, one of my favorite miracles, personally, um, for two reasons. Uh, Firstly, because of all the miracles in the Bible, great, grand miracles that happen before the eyes of big crowds of people, great displays of the sovereignty and, and all and, and omniscience of, uh, and omnipotence of God, um, that this miracle stands alone as a private miracle, an intimate miracle that only one person was there to experience. It was a private miracle between Christ and his apostle, his servant, Peter. Um, The second reason why I love this miracle is because it's hilarious. It's a fish with a coin in its mouth. Um, It's just a funny image, a memorable image, and it stands out because, um, you know, in in the middle of of these, these grand these grand episodes of Christ feeding thousands. Here is an image of of a fish being plucked out of water with, you know, like $600 in its mouth. And it's, it's just, it stands out to me. But before we hear from the word, let's pray one last time uh, that the Lord would bless and speak to us through the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we thank you that through all these authors and through all these historic episodes there is one author and one protagonist that it is the story of you that it is the story of you sending your son to uh, redeem his people, to die on a cross for their sins and to raise again so that they could have eternal life. Lord, we pray that you would take the uh, meager words of your preacher. We pray that you would take what's bad and keep what's good, that you would take what's good and press it into our hearts. And Lord, we pray most of all that you would be with us and that you would speak to us words of healing and encouragement this morning. In Jesus' name and by the power of his spirit. Amen. So as I said, we have a miracle account and it's tucked away at the end of Matthew in chapter 17, um, sort of after the transfiguration. And it starts at uh, verse 24, and it goes through to verse 27. Let's read it together. ESV entitles it, The Temple Tax. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, 
saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. <clears throat> so this, uh, this sermon is entitled Paying the Tax uh, because we have a miracle account where Jesus Christ miraculously provides through the mouth of a fish enough coin to pay for the temple tax, which was a, a, a something from the law, which was a, a, an administrative requirement for all Jews to pay. Peter couldn't pay it. They didn't have money. Jesus didn't have money at the time. But through the provision of God, through the miracle of this fish, uh, Peter had enough money to pay the tax for him and for Christ. Now, it's not just the matter of a simple temple tax, but it points forward to an even greater miracle, right? The great paying of a ransom, which Jesus Christ had come to pay for all his people. So that through this, this small image of this uh, fish pulled out of water with enough money to pay the tax in its mouth, Jesus Christ is showing Peter privately the rock on which he was going to build his church, the first in the first cohort of pastors, uh, that Jesus Christ is sufficient, that Jesus Christ will provide everything that's needed for life in him, paying the tax. So our chapter begins in verse 17, just for a bit of context. They call this situating the text. So for context, we're in Matthew, we're in chapter 17. We've just, uh, the apostles have just witnessed this, this great uh, vision, uh, more than a vision, this reality of Christ, the Son of God, in all his glory, at the top of the hill of transfiguration. So they've come and they've seen Christ face shining, more bright than the sun, his clothes pure white, whiter than any bleach on earth could bleach. The whole ground shaking, right, at the top of this mountain. And not just the ground shaking, but who's with him? Moses is with him. Elijah is with him. The apostles, well, the disciples at the time, Peter included, were there at this, at this moment in Jesus' ministry 
when he reveals to them that everything they think they know about this world is, you know, they can put a question mark on it. They thought the ground was stable underneath them. Hmm, not quite. This holy, holy, holy Jesus could tear it apart at a moment's notice if he wanted to. Moses and Elijah, we thought they were dead. We thought they were long dead. You know, put an asterisk next to Elijah because we know what happened to him. But he thought that these people were long gone. How long ago was Moses? That's a good, 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 good thousand years before, before Jesus came. Elijah, 500 years, something like that. These people are skeletons, less than skeletons. No, they're alive. They're alive, well, intact. And they were there talking with Jesus Christ about a departure to come. Something greater than the Passover that Jesus was going to accomplish. And uh, right, Peter sticks his mouth, he sticks his foot in his mouth, and he says, "Oh, let's build three tents, three tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah." And then a big voice comes from heaven, the voice of the Father, saying, "That one there, this one, Jesus, not Moses, not Elijah, this one here, this is my son. Listen to him." And then it all just kind of ends. And then they're walking down from this mountain and, and, and they've seen that, well, well, they've seen the fabric of reality that, you know, how we might call it as Westerners, the very fabric of reality has been torn. Everything we think we know. Up for grabs. And Jesus is saying, even though I'm master of the world, even though I'm God, even though I'm the son of God, I'm going to hand myself over and I'm going to be mastered by someone else, by the sons of men. That I'm going to come in all my power and glory, the son of God, and actually I'm, I'm going to die. <clears throat> you know, the apostles must have looked at Jesus like he was an atom bomb, right? Like they were like, what is happening next? What is going to happen next? We've been traveling We've been healing, we've been casting out demons, we've, we've, we've been entering into this throne room that, that Isaiah saw, Isaiah saw Jesus, you know, and was undone. Moses asked to see what these apostles, what these guys had just seen, but, but Moses didn't see it. They were in that very presence. And now they're back in town and the tax collectors are asking him, are you going to pay your tax? You know, <clears throat> I think that if, if I were part of that first congregation that had received the gospel of Matthew and we were reading it, I, I would ask the question, um, let's table this question about tax. Can we just go back? Can we just go back to that mountain and, and ask like what, what that was all about? Is this who Jesus is all the time? Is Jesus always holding back this great power? Um, is he, is he, you know, who cares, right? Who cares about the tax? Well, that, that's not the way that the first recipients of 
of Matthew's gospel would have received this text um, because they were Jews, Jewish Christians. Um, in fact, I think when this question of tax came, the Jews would have sat up. They would have said, oh, fine, something interesting. You know, we've, we've, read, we've read Isaiah 6. We know God is glorious. You know, we know God is, you know, we know God could flip over the nation like a, like a patty, just like we know he could, we know he could destroy the world if he wants to. Finally, some real question, because, because Jewish Christians and Jews in particular, you know, they, they are concerned with how all of this power and divinity, um, how does that translate into the living of daily life right now? The Jews call it walking the road. They call it walking the derrick. Um, and to them, it's very important. And I mean, it also has great importance to them <clears throat> because, well, it's, it's a temple tax. It's part of the law of Moses. Um, we know that the law hasn't been thrown away. We know Jesus has come to fulfill the law. We love Jesus. We also love the law. But, but how does this old way of doing things relate to this new way of doing things, which, which we're just starting to walk into. So these Jewish Christians would have been, uh, they, they would have been on the edge of their seats at this question of taxation, uh, especially since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. You know, where do we send our money? You know, what do we do? How do we do what's right? How do we follow God? So they're listening, these tax collectors are coming to Peter, <clears throat> they ask him, does your teacher not pay the tax? And Peter, uh, well, he does the, uh, you know, he, he does the best sort of biblical theological arithmetic he can do at the time. He knows, he has a good idea of the Old Testament. He's seen Jesus, he's seen his glory, he's seen uh, Jesus do the right thing. He knows he's a law keeper. He says, uh, yes, of course. Good people pay the tax. Jesus is the best of people. So he must pay the tax. Of course he pays the tax. And then he goes about his business, comes back home to his house in Capernaum, <clears throat> where Jesus has been this whole time. And when he walks in, there's no hello. There's no, oh, hey, Peter, where have you been? How are you? Jesus asks him first. He spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? Not Peter. Oh, it's Simon. He's not the rock. <laughs> He's Simon. <clears throat> what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Jesus was there. He's omniscient, right? Of course. You should expect that. He was at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. Of course, he can hear every conversation. It's a great comfort, isn't it, that Jesus is with us, that he can hear every, every word of slander that's been spoken to us, every good thing we say, uh, every word we, we say, we, we wish... We could unsay, um, but it's too late. Jesus hears all that. Uh, this is just as an aside. And that should be a great comfort. 
because God has promised that if we confess our sins, that he will forgive us. Jesus knows our sins. He was there. He heard them. And if we forgive them to him, if we confess, if we say, say it the way he heard it, if we're in line with this reality, then he will forgive us on the grounds of his blood. So Jesus heard Peter when he said this. And he asks him this question, from whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From sons or from others? And Peter says, well, from others, right? He's just paid this temple tax. He's just agreed to pay this temple tax, this money um, going to the temple. Uh, and, And Jesus is saying, uh, <clears throat> and Jesus is saying, well, is it right that, that money which goes to the king's house is being paid for by the prince, by the, by the one who's part of the king's family? And it's, it's just, it's completely inappropriate. Because we know with tax, right, we pay money. If, 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 we, if, if uh, Prince William pays tax, that's probably a poor example because things have changed. But, you know, theoretically, let's simplify everything down. If Prince William pays tax to his father, King Charles, and then that money just comes back to him and it goes into his, into his lifestyle, uh, it's completely inappropriate. No, it's the subjects who pay the tax so that the king and his household can live because the prince and the son is the same as the king. It's the same household. And the Jews didn't mind paying this tax. Um, they didn't mind it at all, even though the temple was <clears throat> rife with corruption. They didn't mind it at all. And, um, you know, one of the reasons why they didn't mind paying the tax is because this was a biblical tax. It was part of the law. Uh, it wasn't an imposition from Rome. It wasn't going to pay the funds of soldiers and persecutors. It was going to a good cause, you know, theoretically. It's going towards the priests. Um, <clears throat> now, Jesus, Jesus is saying that, look, Peter, you're, you've been with me. You've been with me this long. You've been at the Mount of Transfiguration. You have seen that I have shaken the ground with my holiness. The voice of God himself has, has said, this is my son. Jesus Christ is God in every sense. It's inappropriate for him to pay the tax. It's inappropriate for him to pay a tax that goes to fund priests because he himself is a greater priest than the, priest of, uh, the priests of Levi. He himself is a high priest of the order of Melchizedek. He comes with a greater task, a greater function, wildly inappropriate. Also inappropriate is that that the paying of a tax carries with it this idea of atonement, that God's people would need to pay a tax Because, of course, Jesus Christ is holy. He has no need to pay a tax. He's under no debt 
from God. We're the ones. We're the ones who are under debt from God. The people of Israel are the ones who are under a great debt from God. And they're the ones who are required to pay this tax. You know, Jesus could have said, how dare you tell these people? How dare you tell these people that I would pay a tax? I don't need atonement. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus has every right not to pay this tax. He's the son of God. He's a greater priest. He has no need of atonement. It would be insulting to say he did. The Jewish Christians hearing this account would know all this. But Jesus said, however, so as not to give offense to them, even though I am the son of God, even though I am free, we're going to pay this tax. And at this point, at this point, the Jewish Christians listening to Matthew would, their heads, their brains would melt and come out of their ears because they have just heard a better use of the law. Until this point, ethical thinking was about taking the law, applying it to a certain, to a, to, to, to a, to a special case, <clears throat> coming up with a ruling, and then writing that ruling down, what is the right a- application of the law in this case, and then, and then recording that, and then, and then doing it. We sort of make fun of these Pharisees who were tithing mint and cumin. But, but behind that self-righteousness, in its worst case, there's self-righteousness. But in its best case, what we have are people who just really want to please God and they really want to know what to do with, with the, the mint and the cumin that comes into their stockhouses. And God bless them, they had, to, they had to keep account of that. And then they had to live that out and they had to do the accounting for every herb that came into their storehouse. Slavery, in hindsight. But these guys were trying hard. But Jesus said this. He said, even though I shouldn't pay this tax, even though it's sinful to suggest that I pay this tax, I'm going to pay it anyway so as not to give offense to these people. A new way of thinking about the law, a new way of applying the law, that you don't have to demand what is right, what is your prerogative, what is appropriate to your status by the word of the law, Instead, you can be willing in your heart to forego it, to forego your status and to forego what, what ought to be yours so that you may not cause offense to another. Or, or to put it another way, you could say, well, um, I, can, I can pay a tax or I can do something which I don't need to do, I don't want to do, um, such as in the New Testament case, you know, uh, the meat to idols. You can eat your meat to idols, the meat sacrificed to idols, the halal meats. You're free from it. You can eat it if you want. But if it causes offense, well, now you can give it up. That's how we apply 
That's, that's, our, that's our new covenant ethic. It's this how do we, it, it's this, it's this people focused. It's this, it's this focus on how am I going to best display the goodness and kindness and grace of God to this person who is flesh and blood, heart and soul, standing in front of me right here. So as not to cause offense to them. Who's the them in that sentence? It's not the temple. The temple's a, you know, that's a building. It's not the administration. It's these two guys that are, that are collecting taxes. He's saying, we don't want them to think that Jesus is less than he is. We, they, they haven't heard yet. They haven't seen yet the revelation of my glory, my messiahship, the cross. We don't want them to, be, to, to, to walk away with this idea that Jesus and his disciples are unloving or unpious. It's a question of witness. So you pay the tax. You don't have to. You're going to pay the tax, Peter. Great. How are we going to do that? Well, Jesus says, well, Peter, you're, you're going to go down to the Sea of Galilee and you're going to take your rod <clears throat> and you're going to uh, cast your line into the water and you're going to fish up the first fish that you see, um, which the commentaries say would have been a catfish, which is hilarious. And you are going to pick up this slimy fish And you are going to reach into this fish's mouth and you are going to pull out enough money to pay the temple tax for yourself and for me. This temple tax was, it was a few days wages per person per year. So two people, we're talking about $600. You know, like just $600 worth of silver in this fish's mouth. And, and Peter did it, of course, because he's seen Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. He's a good follower. It doesn't say he did it, but we're to assume, just the, the account ends there, we're to assume he went down and did it, did exactly as he said, pulled in the line in, pulled out the fish with its whiskers there, and he reached in, and there was the drachma. And then he went on and paid the tax. Now, Peter... There's a young man here, and he carries with him for his whole life the memory of this incident where he uh, left his net at home and got down in the water, pulled out a catfish, and and, and shucked shucked $600 out of his mouth. And we know Peter's life was hard, right? He traveled as a missionary, first generation, faced persecution, first from the Jews, eventually from the Romans. We know that, well, church tradition tells us, and I'm inclined to trust it, that he ended up paying the ultimate tax for his faith. He was crucified upside down in a pie. Because of piety, he said he didn't want to be crucified in the same manner as Christ. So they crucified him upside down, which would have been horrendous. 
And every point until then, this is a life of sacrifice, a life of giving of himself to feed and nourish the church, to go into an, a future where persecution and misunderstanding and distrust is promised. So what is Peter thinking <clears throat> as he goes through life? Elder Peter, martyr Peter, and he's remembering in his mind his short life, his short three-year walk with uh, Christ in his humanity. And in particular, this, this day where he scrambled down into the shore to get this money out of the fish's mouth. Well, the first thing he remembers is that God has provided for him a great salvation. The salvation in life which he lives is not of his own doing at all. He couldn't have found that money. This isn't an accident, right? I mean, it's, it's you know, this, this fish with the, with the money in its mouth is a great picture of divine providence. Whether, <clears throat> whether this coin had been on a journey, you know, maybe it was part of a bank and then it rolled down the end of the pier and then it, and then, you know, a pigeon came and knocked it in and then, and then it sort of was swallowed by a little fish and then carried a little away until finally it was there at the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee where Peter, <clears throat> or whether he just materialized this coin out of nothing, right? Peter couldn't have done that. No human couldn't have done that. This was an act of God that placed this perfect amount of money at this perfect location, at this perfect time, for, for Peter and Jesus to <clears throat> meet the requirements of the law, the temple tax. So the first thing he remembers is that salvation is from God. Every single bit of it. He can't work it. He can't micromanage creation to the point where he can redeem himself. He can't meet the requirements of the law, which requires perfection. What's needed is someone who can, and that someone is Jesus. That someone is Jesus, who is the Son of God, He's the one who provides salvation. The second thing that Peter remembers <clears throat> as he is uh, thinking back on this time is that just as God had provided for him a great salvation, also God will provide everything he needs to live that life of salvation out on a day-by-day -day basis. Everything he needs. You know, as Christians, there's a tax that we have to pay. I'm not talking a ransom. I'm not saying we have to pay the ransom for our sins. That can't be paid by us. Jesus Christ alone has paid that ransom for us. 
But there is a tax which we have to pay. When a Christian wife, right, says, the Bible tells her, uh, submit to your husband. That's a tax you have to pay. That's hard. And uh, you, uh, you know, I say at the end of my first year of marriage, you know, we're, when, when my beloved wife and I are putting our conflict resolution skills into practice, that <clears throat> we stand, <laughs> we stand in front of a door, right? And let's just say theoretically on, on this side of the door is everything that any human being can do. Anyone can pick up a Bible. Any woman can pick up a Bible and submit to her husband, right? Muslim women do it all the time. You know, women in cults, they do that. Mormon women. We don't want to be, you know, we don't want our women to be Mormon women. We don't want them to be Muslim women. You know, we want to be Christians. We want to go through this door and we want to do what only Christians can do. We want to pay the tax that only Christians can pay. We want to live a life of submission to our government, to one another, to our masters. And we want to do this in a way which only Christians can do. And that is, we want to do it to the glory of God. We want to do it as a witness to Christ's salvation for us. We want to do it as a witness to the power of the Holy Spirit working in our heart. So we want to do this to the glory of God, declaring the goodness of God to us and also to our Christian husband, our Christian wife. Muslims can't do that. No one else can do that. Only a Christian can do it. That's a tax you have to pay because it's hard. I'm learning. You know, it's, it's hard. Uh, <laughs> taking it out of marriage, let's say I heard a Christian testimony recently, <clears throat> a teenager, and uh, they're, they're young in their faith. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of a simple circuit, a battery, and it's connected to a light and the light's on. There's life. You know, we haven't added all the transistors and all this complex circuitry that, that comes with catechism. Haven't added all that yet, but she's alive. And she's describing her faith and her experience in these terms. She's saying, I can see that my <clears throat> friends, my non-Christian friends, are living without hope. I can see that they are just <clears throat> living and, and then they're going to die and there's no hope for what's beyond that. And because there's no hope for what's beyond that, well, that, there's actually no love. There's actually no joy. They're just going to live their lives and then that's it. And this girl has made the, uh, the courageous, bold decision empowered by the Holy Spirit because Christ provides everything, she is turning away. All of her generation, all of her friends are on a conveyor belt going, going down the stream. But she is turning away and she's going to live for Christ. She's made this decision at a young age. 
It's a brave decision. And it's a hard decision because now she has to tell her friends, I don't want to do the things that you guys want me to do. I don't want to enjoy these things that you want me to enjoy. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I love you, but I'm not going to do it. And I'm willing to face the consequences of, of that choice. That's a tax. That's a tax that that girl has to pay. Just as there's a tax that wives have to pay, there's a tax that slaves have to pay when they obey their masters, that they are going to witness to Christ and his goodness, the glory of God in their salvation by living a life obedient to him, even if that means facing the wrath of, of, a, of a disappointed world. But the good news is is that Jesus has provided every ounce of strength you need to do that too. He hasn't just given you a salvation. He hasn't just, he hasn't, he hasn't just flipped that switch in your soul so that you're now alive and bright. He is going to give you every bit of strength you need to make that tax, to pay that tax day by day, that daily effort that we have to give. Jesus has paid for it all. So that Peter at the end of his life, can tell people. He says, when you speak, speak oracles of God. Speak your words, speak words that are given to you. When you serve, serve with the strength that God provides. Don't serve under your own strength. Do these things with the power that God has given you, and he will give it to you. So what does that mean? I mean, what is that, <clears throat> what's the difference between Christian conflict resolution and pagan conflict resolution? Well, initially it means that we're drawing on strength that isn't ours. We're asking God for the strength and we're, we're, we're basing the resolution of this conflict or, or you know, the turning away of, of, of you know, the, the breaking of a friendship group for, for a convert. We're basing it in the reality of what Christ has done verbally. We confess it. We confess and we say, look, I'm a sinner. Christ has died for me. And I'm going to tell you this. So with this, and, and now I am going to ask in prayer for the strength to do what I need to do. And I know that God will give it to me because my God can materialize a coin in the mouth of a fish. He can, you know, God could have sent an angel for me. God could have done anything. God doesn't know. He, he, he knows everything. He knows everything down to a minute detail. He can control everything down to a minute detail. But that's how we do it. We ask God for strength. We do it in the strength which God provides, and we thank God for that strength. We give him glory for it. Last of all, when Peter is thinking back <clears throat> on his time down by the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he's pulling this coin, $600, out of the mouth of this catfish, Peter remembers that he's free to lighten up about it. Just lighten up about it. We have to pay a tax. It's hard. But Christ has paid this tax and we don't, have to, we don't have to bear this load. 
We don't have to be sad about it. We don't have to worry about where our tax is going. You know, if I give money to this person, are they going to spend it there? If I give money to the government, are they going to spend it there? We're free to just give. To give for the sake of loving the people who are in front of us. Loving the people whom God has given us to love. We're free to do it. It's an invitation to expectant prayer. And it's an invitation to direct prayer. We don't have to micromanage how our love is going to be used or or where our money's going, where our resources and gifts are going. We can pray knowing that the strength which God gives us to do the things which God commands us are going to be used in a way which which, which delights God and which God is going to use for his own glory and for the reaping of our eternal harvest. It's an invitation to prayer, light prayer, expectant prayer, constant prayer, but not despairing prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we uh, thank you. We thank you for every gift you've given us. We thank you for your life that you've given us in Christ. We thank you for the strength you give us. We thank you for, uh, we thank you that, that we can know that a life given in simple devotion to you is not a life that is wasted. We thank you that you've paid the tax. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to strengthen us through this week as we live our lives. We pray that we would live lives pleasing to you, um, lives which uh, adorn the gospel. And Lord, we uh, pray that uh, you will be glorified this week as we uh, go about your kingdom work. In Jesus' name, amen.